And uh, thanks, Matt, for suggesting that we connect again with the Inspiring Saints series. I'm not sure I was really thanking Matt at about 10.30 in the evening when I was reading through Royal Commission reports about some of the stuff that I was looking at, but I think that says more about me than it does about Matt. Uh, Last week, we heard about Martin Luther and the thirst that he had for a right relationship with God. That thirst led Luther to be uh, to allow for a significant catalyst in his life and also in the, the movement of Christianity to challenge the distortion and the abuses of church power that were in need of reformation. The reformation that comes first from within and then challenges and seeks to transform institutions, structures and authorities around us. Today we focus on another revolutionary couple of people. While he and his wife's mark is but a blip on the world stage compared to Luther, for those who lived on an Aboriginal station at Corrandirk, just south of Healesville, an hour's drive east of Melbourne, the positive mark that they made on the lives of these people is significant. Significant enough to help trigger various reports and that Royal Commission that I was talking about. It's worthy of noting that there are many parts to this story and I believe it's important to acknowledge that I will not do all those parts justice today because I'm going to be focusing on a few and specifically two people. The year was 1860 and less than a decade earlier, New South Wales and Victoria had separated and with the discovery of gold came a shift in the population of Victoria. The arrival of predominantly European boat people to Victoria now numbered around half a million people in 30 years and the first Australians declined through the impact like displacement, disease and killings. Their numbers were reduced from at least 15,000 down to around 2,000 and they were well on their way to extinction. The Wurundjeri people who lived on the land that wrapped around um, the west, north, east and southeast of Melbourne suffered a reduction in their population of around 95% and numbered only 36 people. Some considered Charles Darwin's 1859 theory of natural selection as justification for the dying out of these lesser natives over the years to come. And my reading of the, um, the years that the Aboriginal Protection Board were established, they seemed to be responsible at times for the Aborigines with a, a desire reflected in their attitudes and actions to either having the Aborigines bred out or to die out. On the 24th of August in 1857, the 27-year-old Scottish Presbyterian John Green took Mary Smith Benton Green, his wife of just one day, on a honeymoon. Isn't that nice? 
It wasn't just any honeymoon, it was an 80 to 90 day cruise moving to Australia. According to a newspaper article from the State Library of Victoria, John was led to see that the object of his life should not, merely, uh, should not be merely to live for himself, but to make himself useful to others. In a subsequent meeting of the Young Men's Christian Association, John heard the blacks were pronounced to be a doomed race, unsusceptible to Christian influence and utterly incapable of civilization. Green was so grieved to hear such an opinion being made by professedly Christian men that he ventured to combat it. Through their own means and the offerings and support of others to which they served, John and Mary became bush missionaries, establishing a dwelling and a chapel and a desire to reach the Europeans in the goldfields and if a way opened up, also among the Aborigines. By 1860, John was riding to Yearing near Yarra Glen to hold regular Sunday services to the Wurundjeri people camped there. Quickly, there became an undeniable bond between John and Mary Green and the Wurundjeri. Welcomed by groups, the group's leaders Simon Wonga and his cousin William Barak, there becomes a, becomes a genuine friendship between Barak, Wonga and the Greens, with Barak becoming John's first convert to Christianity. It's interesting to note, as an aside, if you know your Victorian history, that Simon Wonga and William Barak were witnesses to the so-called treaty between the Koori clan leaders and Batman in 1835. Mary becomes a young mother, a mother at Yering, giving birth to her first of 12 children. The young Wurundjeri couples were about the same age as the Greens and their children would regularly play together. They developed a bond of trust and friendship. In 1861, the newly established Central Board appointed to watch over the interests of Aborigines employed John Green as an inspector. Green left his family in the care of Barak and Wonga for weeks at a time during his inspection tours. By 1863, the Greens, Barak and Wonga came to share a common and, and um, ambitious dream of land for the Kulun Nation, made up through the alliance of five Aboriginal tribes, including the Wurundjeri people, in south-central Victoria. A land where they could settle down, a land where they could build their homes, a land where they could be free and raise their children. Barak and Wonga believed that if they were to survive and be the Narangata, the, the head leaders that their people needed, they would need to adapt and at times adopt white people's ways. And this was met by a willing approach 
by John and Mary. In a radical departure from the many of the paternalistic attitudes of the day, looking down on these, these people that were different, John and Mary worked with and not over the Aboriginal people. John flatly denied that the whites were of superior intellect and preferred to work with Aborigines over whites. John testified, I would prefer many of them to white men, for, as a rule, they will do their work more cheerfully. While their relationship was not always easy and disagreements arose, and John didn't always handle those differences well, the relationship forged between the Greens, Barak and Wonga became known for its friendship, mutual trust and collaboration. It was only when there was a conflict, uh, a direct conflict between uh, their behaviour of uh, the Wurundjeri people and Christian principles, did Green seek to direct the people away from some of their traditional practices. In other areas, he and Mary respected the tradition and the practices of the people and their connection with land. In fact, Green himself acquired a grasp of the Woiwurrung and the Tungarong dialects spoken in the day. At Corrandirk, a station just near Healesville, Victoria, the Greens and the Kulun Nation found their home. By 1866, there were 103 Aborigines, including 38 children, living on the station. Mary started a school um, at Corrandirk, teaching her children alongside the Aboriginal children who learnt and played together. There they built homes, planted crops including wheat, vegetables and grazed cattle. They had a reputation for growing the best hops in the state and John shared his success with the Kulun Nation but also with Mary, his wife. Once again, quoting from the 1866 newspaper article, reflecting on the first three years of Corrandirk and the Greens' leadership in that space. Considering the difficulties he has had, it must be acknowledged that he has already achieved no ordinary triumph. But the difficulties that John and Mary Green experienced were not confined with Corrandirk. In the SBS series of, on First Australians, it was noted that in this new endeavour, and with the will of the Aboriginal Protection Board against Green and his efforts at Corrandirk, Green was destined to fail because he had no friends. His friends were black. Other Aboriginal groups on reserves across Victoria soon hear about the differences between their reserve and how it was run and Corrandirk, and they want the same for themselves. John Green set up a model that challenged the way other missionaries and other managers sought to assimilate First Australians. Such a challenge was not taken well by the others and the Protection Board. For more than a decade, and even following the Greens' removal 
from, um, by the board from being at Corondirk in 1874. Their relationship with the Karun, uh, the Kaloon nation was so strong that John and Mary purchased an, an adjoining block of land and built their new home on the land that bordered Corondirk Reserve. While the board, because of their own agenda, banned the Greens from Corondirk, the Aborigines would regularly visit the Greens' home, whether it be because of their illness that they were having or to attend John's Presbyterian Sunday services, much to the vexation of the Corondirk's successive Anglican managers. Life was at times challenging for John and Mary. The loss of income as manager of Corondirk, and in January 1876, in the space of three weeks, John and Mary buried six, their six youngest children who all died of scarlet fever. Yet once again, such was the deep relationship that on a few occasions, Aboriginal leaders of Corondirk walked the 60-kilometre journey to Melbourne to protest the treatment of the, by the new managers and to plead for John and Mary Green's reinstatement and to try and stop the closing of Corondirk. During the Royal Commission that followed, while others sought to have the station managed by justice, of uh, justice of the peace or judicial systems of management, Green saw things differently. Mr John Green, when responding to the question about improving the station's management and the maintenance of discipline at Corondirk Station, he stated, I would suggest that the station be handed over to one of the churches who is able and willing to supply men to manage it. Now listen to this. Not so much for the salary they could get as for their love for the Aboriginal's welfare. There are such men to be found, I'm happy to say, in our churches. Reading through the 1877 Royal Commission on Aborigines and the 1882 Corondirk Aboriginal Station Report, time and time again, the Kloon Nation just wanted to have John and Mary Green back as managers and to be left alone. In the now famous extract that inspired a book and a play, we discover in the 1882 Corondirk Aboriginal Station Report a petition seven years after Green exited as manager. Corondirk Station, November 16, 1881. Sir, we want the board and the inspector, Captain Page, to be no longer over us. We want only one man here, that is, Mr John Green, and the station to be under the Chief Secretary. Then we will show the country that the station could, be self, could self-support itself. But the grant to wish, um, to grant their wish would in, interfere with the Aboriginal Protections Board's agenda. Their pleading failed. And by 1886, what became known as the Half-Caste Act was implemented 
singling the end of Corondoc, forcing the younger generation and then ultimately all residents off the station. And so started the slow burn of what became known as the stolen generation. For John and Mary Green, accounts of their lives in the years that followed the closure of Correnberg are as difficult to grasp as the morning mist. We know that John died in 1908 and Mary 11 years later in 1919. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. Even in the brief research that I did on the life of John and Mary Green, I was reminded of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Perhaps as I read this, you might see some common ground too. And then I'll briefly wrap up with what's in, what we should be thinking about for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through to the first part of 27. Even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed the Jewish law, I too lived under that law. Even though I'm not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with the Gentiles, who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from that law, so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness, for I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. I do everything to spread the good news and to share its blessing. Don't you realise that in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. As I looked at this passage and I thought about the life of Paul and the lives of John and Mary, there are a few things that stood out for me. Both Paul, John and Mary shared a passion for Jesus and the gospel. And we see that in verse 23 of this passage. Have you ever come across someone that is just passionate about something? They enthusiastically look for ways to talk about it to others. For Paul, the transformational experience of God in his life changed the way he looked at the world. Scales fell off his eyes and he saw Jesus differently. And as a result, he also saw the world around him differently. For John and Mary Green, as a result of the the challenging message that John heard, 
was to, to see that the object of his life should be not merely to live for himself, but to make his life useful for others. Through a passion for Jesus and the gospel, John and Mary's life became focused on sharing God's love with others. Both Paul, John and Mary shared a love of people too. We see that in this passage in verse 19. Implicit in Paul's writing to the Corinthians was his love of the people, the value that he saw in them. You are not going to sacrifice yourself for something or someone that you don't care about, that you don't value, that you don't love. For Paul, he loved and longed for others to share in the blessing of being in a relationship with Jesus. For John and Mary, their love for and their desire for others is there. Their love for Barak, for Wonga, for the Kulun nation is recorded in history through the 1877 Royal Commission on Aborigines. He had faith that his love, God's love, will be found in followers of Jesus as well. Both Paul, John and Mary were prepared to have a change in posture as well. Neither Paul nor John and Mary were perfect and in their interactions at times with others, they sometimes got it wrong. Think of Paul with Mark when he said, I don't want him with me on this journey anymore, he's, he's trouble. And then later on he says, hey, let's bring Mark back. Uh, yeah, I, I'd really value him being a part of my ministry. And there were times when John and Mary thought that they knew better as well. But when they got it wrong, they sought to change their behaviour. All three of them came alongside others to serve them, and to care for them, not to care over them in a paternalistic manner, thinking that they were superior to those that they served, but they cared for and they were also cared for by others in mutual ministry. Both Paul, John and Mary shared an understanding of culture and a commitment to core beliefs. Once again, we see that in verse 21 of the passage. Paul was not prepared to allow the traditions and his own cultural baggage to get in the road of the gospel message. He was secure in what he believed and he was able to adapt in his his, uh, ability to respond to and the surrounding cultural context in such a way that he held tight to the non-negotiables but he was also flexible and able to reframe and adapt to his surroundings so as not to have his culture become a stumbling block for the good news. Similarly, John and Mary were prepared to hold unswervingly to the message of salvation, but they allowed the Aborigines to largely self-govern, to hold many of their cultural traditions. He respected those he served and he treated them as equals and they loved him and they came to love God because of John and Mary's desire for cultural sensitivity. Both Paul, John and Mary share a sacrificial determination as well. 
They gave up much to see people's lives transformed by the gospel. They all lived out the realities of taking up their cross daily to follow Jesus, whether it be ultimately for Paul going to Rome or for John and Mary going to Corinth. For John and Mary, their love for the people overrode their love for a role, a position, for authority, for pay. Unable to retract his resignation, given out of frustration at the establishment of the day, John and Mary did the next best thing that they could by living next to Corinth with the Aboriginal community. They lived right next door and with an open door to those they loved. And even after losing six of their 12 children, they chose to live on beside that community. John and Mary Green, inspiring saints, Absolutely. I'm reminded of another of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 33 to chapter 11, verse 1, where we read these words. I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others so that they may be saved. And you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Or as another translation puts it, follow me as I follow Christ. Inspiration comes from all sorts of places and people. Sporting heroes, movie stars, script writers, poetry and the arts and in other unlikely sources. Kids overcoming disabilities. Creation overcoming obstacles and from people like Paul and a couple of Scottish Presbyterians, newlyweds coming to Australia, John and Mary Green, we would all do well to follow their example as they followed Christ. So what stands out for you today? I believe that there are challenges for me individually, there are challenges probably for each of us, but there are also challenges for us as a church, as we're called to have a passion for Jesus and the gospel, to love people deeply, to change our posture in order to serve others, to have an understanding of our culture and the culture around us, and a commitment to our core beliefs in that, to maintain a sacrificial determination, even when times get tough. What may God the Holy Spirit be saying to you today? What might your response be? I invite you, as we listen to some music in the background, to take some time, pull out those response cards, and there might be one of those, those points on the screen that you can see. That you think, yeah God, I really feel you nudging me with this. Then we would invite you to write a prayer of response today on that response card. Or if you're a bit more technologically savvy, then you can send a text or you can send an email as well. Let's take time to do business with God. Let's follow Paul, John 
and Mary Green's example as they follow Christ. God bless you.